0: I remember being in this position where I was thinking, if I walk to this door and open it, I leave this world. I don't come back. And then I began to think about my children, my girls, and how they would manage without me. And that was when I thought, I do not want to go through that door yet. And then all of a sudden, it felt like I was literally going back into my body again. And the clatter of the MRI scanner and the pain in my head came back and I was back in the room. The Profile, with Premier Christianity magazine.
1: Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Emma Fowle. The Profile is a show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, their faith and their ministry. It's brought to you in association with Premier Christianity, the UK's leading Christian magazine. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, as well as all of the latest news, reviews, columnists, and much, much more. Plus, there's great new digital content uploaded daily to our website, premierchristianity.com. To get full access wherever you are in the world, there are print and digital subscription options to suit you. Get the magazine delivered directly to your door or access all of the latest content via your computer, your smartphone or the Premier Christianity app. Head over to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe for more information. Today on the show, I'm delighted to be joined by the renowned tenor Russell Watson. Russell is one of the UK's best-selling classical artists, and since finding fame more than 20 years ago, Russell has won multiple Brit Awards, sold more than 7 million albums, and performed for the late Queen Elizabeth II, the Pope, and two US presidents. So we're delighted to be joined on the profile today by the lovely Russell. Thanks so much for being with us, Russell.
0: You're welcome. It's my pleasure.
1: So let's get started. Let's talk a little bit about your early life and your faith. What was your early life like and what role, if any, did faith play in it?
0: I think in the initial stages, faith, I would say, came from, probably came from school. My parents really didn't talk a great deal about religion and they didn't go to church. Um, But the interesting thing about my parents was as much as they didn't go to church and practice faith, they brought me up in what I consider to be a very Christian way, so they brought me up to be to to believe in honesty and to believe in integrity and predominantly to be a good person i I think um that the moral code in which my both my parents live by is one that I would recommend to anybody these days. Uh, And I had the most uncomplicated of upbringings. I don't, I barely remember hearing my parents even argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know. But if they did, my sister and I were never aware of it. And so we were, I would say in many respects brought up in this cocoon that, I think more than my father, because he he worked 12-hour night shifts, 12-hour 12, 12 day shifts, sometimes six days a week. Um, but we were brought up in this cocoon that my mother created, this bubble, for want of a better word, where I, I think we were, in, in many respects, overprotected. But faith, for me, came much later in life.
1: Would you tell us a little bit about that how what at what point in your life did you first think oh you know I, I i haven't been taught any of this at home but i think there might be something out there what what did that look like for you for you in your journey
0: it was probably when i first became aware of of mortality and that would have been when my first grandparent died and all of a sudden this person that had been there for the entirety of my life up to that point all of a sudden was gone, and I began to think about and question where and why and who had taken them, or if anybody had taken them for that matter. And I think that's the initial stages of where my faith began to develop naturally and more of a a thought process of, is there a God, and if there is, why has he taken this person that I love? And then I think later on into life, I think the biggest catalyst for me, because I've always believed, not necessarily a chap sat on a cloud with a long beard throwing bolts of lightning down, but I've always believed that there is an entity and a power greater than us and that we should live by a specific moral code. And that code, in many respects, I think represents... Um, a Christian value, certainly from my perspective in life anyway. But I think the main catalyst for me in my faith came when I suffered from illness. And that was the first brain tumour which hit me in 2005. And that was where I really began to think about faith. And that was in essence where I think I really began to pray hard for the first time in my life to God.
1: Yeah let's talk a little bit about that because yeah a, a relatively you know the, probably at the height of your career you, you've suffered from you've just you said um actually two brain tumors in in two in very sl- close succession um and one of which the the second one resulted in in an emergency that you've described as um having a a near death experience almost could you tell us a little bit about that journey and, and what happened during that time
0: it's funny. I, I think there's two ways in which you can again look at faith. And I think first and foremost, for me, when I was struck by the first tumor, I remember I, I did a lot of praying. I was I was petrified. I was scared. I knew that I needed an operation to get the thing out of my head, and I was very frightened. And I knew what the the repercussions of the surgery would be and that my life would literally never be the same again. And so I did a lot of praying then and then it struck for the second time. And I think it's at that point where many people will question their faith. I think in the most perilous of times. And I think there's two ways in which you can go when you're faced, when you're literally looking your own mortality in the face. I think you can either go, well, I don't believe in this anymore why has this happened to me and or you can take your faith and again use it as something to and which I did I mean I think my faith and my belief in god my fa- my belief in the fact that I was still here for a reason was one of the was one of the biggest reasons why I was able to continue with with my life I think that faith was Part of the reason why I had such strength, I drew from my belief during that very, very difficult period of time. And I think it's easy as human beings, I I think, to, again, going back to that Christian faith and the Christian beliefs, I think, as humans, we naturally become sidetracked with things that aren't necessarily that important. And one of the lessons, the great lessons that I learned from that period of time was the things in life that are important, you know, the people that surround me, the people that make me happy, the balance between life and career as well was another strong lesson that I knew that at the time I wasn't spending enough time with my family. And I changed all that. And again, I think that was predominantly down to what happened to me and to a degree, my faith.
1: Yeah, I mean, you were sort of at that point in time, six or seven years into the, the real height of your career and and and. Yeah. Although you became famous later in life, you know when it when it finally did take off, for you it, it took off quite hard and fast, didn't it? And suddenly you're performing in stadiums all around the world and meeting all these f- famous people. Was that something that you f- you found hard to manage? I mean, you've you've said that that was probably before you sort of properly became a Christian, but you know what what were the biggest challenges for you in that time becoming famous?
0: I think I think when when you when in many respects, like with regards to my career at that point, literally plucked from almost complete obscurity. I mean, I I was working in the Backstreet pubs and clubs of the Northwest. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It certainly isn't because it was again it it was I spent 10 years doing that. And it was a it, it was an immense learning curve for me. And it was a fantastic platform. For me to learn a craft that so many artists don't get the opportunity to to, to do, because I learned how to communicate with an audience. I, I, you know, I was walking into venues more often than not where there's a hundred people who weren't in the least bit interested in what I was doing on stage, and I had to get them interested. And so I think as a result of that, I became a better entertainer, a better performer. But I think the early stages of my career, I was set up well for it because I'd been longing for it for such a long time that when it happened, I was ever so excited. You know, these wonderful places that I was visiting, all these fantastic people that I was singing for and meeting, you know, singing with some of my childhood idols, you know, the likes of Paul McCartney from the Beatles. I used to sit in my bedroom with with my best pal from down the road with my Hoffner semi-acoustic. And he had his Rickenbacker guitar and we'd sit jamming away for hours to, you know, the old Beatles classics. And, you know, there I was a matter of years later at the Nobel Peace Prize Awards singing on stage with Paul McCartney. It was a surreal moment for me. The same with Luciano Pavarotti. I mean, the Hyde Park with him and... And then a little bit later on, a concert with Meatloaf in New York City. Uh, Lionel Richie, one of the nicest people I've ever met in the industry, and, and the list goes on. It, it was it was an amazing time, but I don't think at the time I felt intimidated by by it all because I'd I'd had such a dare I say it such a long walk to get there. So when I got it, I was just fully appreciative of it.
1: Was it ever hard to be um, a Christian, a person of faith in the entertainment industry? Do you find it hard now? Is it is it difficult?
0: Yeah, because there are so many people that don't behave in a Christian manner. And you have to kind of get through that. It's a tough industry. And it's an industry where, dare I say it, there are many untruths spoken. And you have to kind of get used to that. You have to get used to as much as the word yes. You have to get used to hearing the word no more. And more importantly than that, an, a, a life lesson that I learned many years ago, you can't please everyone and you can't do everything. And once you've accepted that, your life becomes so much more gratifying. Because I remember in the early stages, and the one thing that I found most difficult in the early stages of my career was saying no which meant that i was away from home and not seeing the people in my life that i cared about and loved the most anywhere near as much as i should have because mm. i was being driven in this direction you can't say no to this because if you do this will happen you can't you must do this or you won't get that and it and it became all consuming and that isn't good it wasn't good and i didn't enjoy it
1: And how do you make sure that you you keep that sense of balance now?
0: By saying no to things that I don't want to do, first and foremost. And secondly, by strategically planning the diary and the year to suit my needs. And my needs are that I want to spend time with my wife. My children are grown up now, but I want to see them. Every week, I want to see them at least once or twice a week. Get in my car and I drive down to where they live and we go and have a coffee or we go shopping or we go for a walk. But I want to see my kids. As I say, they're grown up, but the dynamic has not changed. And I think predominantly as well, because when I went through the illness, they went through it with me. And so it's made our relationship even stronger. I couldn't imagine myself, for instance, Doing what I did, I—I mean, in the early again, back in the early stages of my career, where I had to go and we were breaking into the United States, and I literally went and lived in America for about eight nine months. There's no way I would consider doing that now.
1: Out of all of those famous people that you've met, and you've you've met many of them, who would you say is the most inspirational to you? It's
0: a very difficult question to answer i mean it depends on what you're referencing because i've met lots of inspirational people from children to soldiers with regards to music you know i've met people and thought you know what a wonderful human being what a voice but never really thought as an artist how inspiring there are lots of human beings that i've met that have inspired me there's a young lady sadly passed away a few years back, local to the area that I live in, called Kirsty Howard, who was famous for the fact that she was the young child that handed uh, David Beckham the Commonwealth baton at the opening ceremony of the Commonwealth Games in 2002. And I, I ended up doing a lot of charity work for her charity, which was Francis House Hospice, which is a hospice for children. And raising a lot of money but she was this kid that kind of basically was born with all her internal organs back to front but was such an incredible inspiration not just to me but I think to many people who met her always in a wheelchair always had a smile on her face it was so strange because she got this very small child but that had this vision that she wanted to do something that made a difference for people from the age of three or four and raised millions and millions of pounds um, for her charity she was an inspiration
1: and you do quite a lot of work for charity yourself don't you I read recently that um, you become one of the first the first artists to record songs to be left as a <laughs> legacy in your will is that true us about that
0: Well, yeah, but that's for worldwide cancer research. And in essence, what that is, it's not really a song, but it's a collection of songs that I've gathered together as a medley of the pieces of music that represent something to me personally in my life. And I know that that will be compounded by the... I think what they also mean to family members and friends of mine that have listened to these songs with me. And that's what it is. And the whole idea of the whole concept of it is with worldwide cancer research is that they give you an opportunity to go to their website and get a free will, in essence, write a will and write the things because I mean, there's so many. I, I think in this country, post life is something that, in many respects, is a taboo subject, and it shouldn't be really. Mm. I mean, my my um, my wife went through it recently with her grandfather, and there, there had to be this huge discussion about what songs were played at the funeral. And sometimes these discussions can get get quite touchy. But if you've done it prior you know, and said, I'd like this, 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 and this. It saves all that. Wills and the lack of them cause more than 70% of family disputes.
1: And is that something that, did your outlook on that kind of stuff change after your brain tumour?
0: was? No, it, it took a little while, but having, you know, when, I think as we progress in life, I don't like to use the word old. It, it, it suggests that something is, is is lacking in value or it, it kind of suggests that something is past it in many respects. I like to, something progresses in age. It doesn't necessarily become old. It, it, it can, in many respects, it can improve. But I, I think as we progress in age, I think we experience more death we see death we see mortality very very different differently to what we did when we were with we, we children i mean when i was a kid i didn't even think about death i didn't even realize that you know we were here and we're not going to be anymore i think again until my first grandparent passed away and i knew i was never going to see them again but i think we we don't give it a great deal of thought and i think i think we should i know it's a morbid a morbid subject but i think we should give it consideration because it's it's a real thing and and it's there's nothing more certain in life than eventually there will be death and it's i think in many respects to plan for that as well as you can saves those around you that you love a great deal of stress
1: so do you have the the hymns that you want sung at, at your funeral planned out
0: I have everything planned out, but I'm not telling you because it's secret. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to give us I a one
1: exclusive I of want, the I want, songs yeah, I that we started at Russell Watson's funeral.
0: <laughs> I want there to be a few surprises, <laughs> and also, you know, I don't want everything to be serious and 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 in again for want of a better word, morose. I want I want there to be some laughter. I remember this hilarious story and I know we again it's not something it's a taboo subject and we shouldn't joke too much about it but one of my friends many years ago her grandma had passed away and she'd gone to the funeral I saw her a few days later how did the funeral go she said well it was she said grandma was such a comedian she 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 was constantly joking and laughing she says but it was She said it was a a really sad affair, you know, and there was some very, you know, some good speakers and the songs that that they played up until the end were very, you know, grandma's favourites, some classical music in there, and she said, and there was lots of tears. She said, and right at the very end, however, she said grandma's sense of humour came through because as they were, as the coffin was going into the crematorium, grandma had asked sneakily to have ding dong the witch is dead played and she said literally everybody in the room fell about laughing and said that's her all over
1: (laughs) yeah and it's an interesting perspective as christians as well isn't it because there is that element of hope in a life after death and 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 all of those things rolled in so you know as christians it isn't something we should fear in in that respect is it
0: I think if I think that if there was anyone there out there that really is 100% confident that there is something after life then I think you can probably roll through life without any fear whatsoever of death I would like to believe implicitly that there is something after death however I'm not in the position, certainly not at this moment in time, where I feel implicitly that there is. And because of that, I still fear death. And it's something that, as I again, as I progress in age, I do still feel, and I'm just being honest with you here, that I would love nothing more than for there to be an afterlife. And I feel that I've been a good Christian and... If when the day comes, there is, I'd like to think that I would be heading there rather than the other place. But I don't feel 100% certain that there is. And because of that, I do still fear death. And I think most people, even of Christian faith, if they were to be 100% honest, would still have that sense of, I hope there is.
1: That's really interesting to hear you say that especially you know considering you've you've spoken before about having you know that sort of out of body near death experience um, when when you had your brain tumor I mean I yeah. I I have a similar story to yours I became a christian from a, <laughs> a non-christian home when I was around 8 9 years age and and largely also had those feelings of existential crisis I, my my husband always laughs as I'm a, I was obviously a very odd child because I used to sit and think about <laughs> you know, what would happen after I ceased to exist and, and yeah. get myself very upset about it. Um, and, and when I became a Christian, um, even now, actually, I've been a Christian for over 30 years. And I, personally, I, I feel very sure that there is a heaven and that there is a God. But I still, s- still struggle from time to time with feelings of fear around death. And I think that's, for me, the sort of... Uh, the lack of control or the, the lack of you know knowing exactly what that experience is going to feel like so it's very scary to imagine I can't okay. imagine it so it's very scary if, if that makes sense so I, I yeah. think you're right I think you know regardless of how you think about it or how you view you know what you understand the bible says about it maybe the fact is like you said we, we're not very good at talking about it and that in some ways doesn't help maybe we should talk more about this in our, our churches and our families
0: I think so yeah I think the 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 discussions and the conversations that we have about post-life would help massively with our thoughts of the lives that we live. And I'm kind of, I, I am in agreement with you. I do believe that there is a God and I do believe that there's a heaven and a hell, but that fear Still, very much exist within me, and it did for a long time. Even after my experience in the MRI scanner, where I literally had this visualization that it, 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 scary, yet in in many respects exhilarating, as much as I was literally on the cusp of death, whilst and and had this vision while I was in the MRI scanner of and the clatter of everything, and the noise, and the pain that I was feeling at the time from the fact that the tumor had hemorrhaged, and all the rest of it, literally just disappeared. It was almost like it was almost like I had left my body, and I was in this dark room, and there was a door, and there was a slither of light down the side of the door, something representative of when I was a, a child. And I remember when I used to say at my grandma's and the house was quite dark and I would always insist that the door was left slightly ajar and there was always a slither of light down the door. And I remember being in this position where I was thinking, if I walk to this door and open it, retrospect not retrospectively but within the context of what was going on in my mind I leave this world I don't come back and then I began to think about my children my girls and how they would manage without me and that was when I thought I do not want to go through that door yet and then all of a sudden it felt like I was literally going back into my body again and the clatter of the MRI scanner and the pain in my head came back and I was back in the room.
1: Wow, that's an incredible story. And, uh, yeah, I, I should imagine that's pretty strong proof for you that there is something else out there.
0: <laughs> it is, but it still doesn't stop me from being frightened. And I remember I didn't even realise, but I had, I had a serious bout of PTSD after that because... I went to bed in my own home one night and I didn't wake up the next day. I was unconscious and I was taken down the stairs of my home at the time by two paramedics and put in the back of an ambulance and rushed to hospital for emergency surgery. And so for a long, long time afterwards, I would go to bed every night Thinking that I wasn't going to wake up in the morning, because my biggest fear isn't necessarily dying; it's not seeing the people that I love again.
1: Did you ever pray about that does Does your does your faith help you deal with those feelings? of fear? I pray
0: for, I pray for everyone that I love. Simple as that. I pray for my kids for their safety. I pray for my wife. I pray for our pets. Believe it or not. I pray for everything around me that means something to me personally. If I see something, be it on the news or on social media or, you know, the the media in general, that I I think is something that I make an association with I don't like or I feel feel for a situation that a group of people or one person might find themselves in, I'll pray for them. Which of these topics has not been covered on premierchristianity.com? UFOs, near-death experiences, Doctor Who, Christ's Return, the faith of celebrities, and Andrew Tate. Trick question. We don't shy away from any topic. We cover faith as it affects us in daily life and give you the bigger picture. premierchristianity.com Special podcast subscription offer at premierchristianity.com slash podcast.
1: Let's talk about your your musical career. Now you've you've talked earlier about sitting on your bedroom floor and playing Beatles songs with your mates. Did you always want to be a singer?
0: No. No. Football all the way, football every day, anywhere, anyway. It was just football. Um everything else was a was a sideline. It was I think it was when I got into my teen years that I began to get more interested in the music i'd done all the usual things you know i started playing piano from the age of seven with a little old lady that lived down the road from me called mrs whitfield and got relatively good and then packed it in because i decided at some point i wanted to play guitar instead and then i picked the guitar up, started learning that but it was they it was always a sideline to football my dream of you know again being plucked from obscurity you know sort of indicative of of the Roy of the Rovers magazines you know the safest hands in soccer and all those types of figures that were in these comics at the time um but it was just it was it was daydreams I I was if, if I'm being honest I wasn't particularly good my aspirations um, of grandeur were way outweighed by my inability.
1: <laughs> so who first noticed that little Russell could sing then? How did that happen?
0: I didn't really notice. I, I, It was one of those things where, as a child, I was always a natural mimic. I would be able to mimic, you know, whatever celebrities were on television at the time be able to figure the voices out and do the voices, school teachers, um, I, I was also, I, I would impersonate. Um, and so I kind of became the go-to class clown. But I, there wasn't a singular moment or catalyst for that, that I can actually pinpoint and say that was it, because it all Progressed very slowly over a long period of time, from singing in my bedroom as a child to you know some of the old music that used to be on the radio, you know, from sort of Cliff Richard to you know Elton John or Meatloaf. and, and whilst they were whilst those songs were playing on the radio, and I'd sit up on my in my bedroom with my little transistor radio, I would sing along to them mimicking their voices and actually and, and just thinking that everybody could do that and it was only later down the line that i realized well not everybody can make themselves sound like neil diamond not everyone can make themselves sound like cliff richard or nutkin cole or meatloaf but i had an ability to do that and mimic voices and that was where really my career started by going out as almost like a Joe Longthorn-type character where I'd go out doing impersonations of of different singers. And that was where it really began. It was more towards the middle of my club career where I started singing more musical theatre stuff, Phantom of the Opera and that kind of repertoire that people started to say, wow, you've got a great voice, pal. Well, thank you.
1: But, so you never had any formal
0: opera training or anything like that it just it just came absolutely from singing. loads of it but it was after it was after that I'd been singing for a long time and it was only when I discovered that I did have this huge noise in my my chest that I began to hone the skill of singing classical repertoire and then more recently you know I've started to learn other techniques as well not just classical i'm fascinated by the voice and the infrastructure of it how it works how we replicate sounds and the fact that i have the ability to switch from styles and sounds um because as i say i'm i'm a natural mimic i just finding different styles of singing and and ways of 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 warming the voice up as well as a, a something a, about four or five years ago. And again, it's more, it's, it's used more by classical theatre performers, but it's called the Estill method. And it's a method that uses fricatives to warm up, which takes away pressure from the voice when you're warming the voice up. So rather than la 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 la, la it's more sort of rrr, 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 type thing. So using tongue trills and lip trills and whole different, whole different style of, of singing as well.
1: So, would you describe yourself as ambitious at all? Did you have a plan at some point in your life to become God, a singer?
0: No, yeah. absolutely no plan whatsoever. This is and that's
1: what—that's kind of by accident.
0: In many respects, yes, and that's what made it so exciting was that none of it really was planned. It is now, but it's different now because I'm not the guy I was 33 years ago. Where I kind of, I was in there on a wing and a prayer, getting work and bookings and turning up doing my, my my show, and that was it. Whereas now it's more formulaic, you know. We're planning in advance. You have a tour. We're working with some of the biggest promoters on the planet, and it's a different beast altogether. So you you have to plan in advance. I mean, I'm booked through now till the beginning of 2025, and that's kind of how I want it to be because it's a different in in, I'm a business now in in many respects yes I'm an artist yes I'm a performer but we it's a business that we're running here
1: do you find um do you you feel any conflict in that at all is is there do you are, are you happier with what you're doing musically now than you were 33 years ago is there something of the spontaneity that you miss how do you feel about it
0: no, I don't miss the spontaneity because, in many respects, the spontaneity still very much exists. Because you're in an industry where, you know, as I mentioned before, it's it's quite cutthroat. You know that there are dishonest people out there, as there are in any walk of life. But with respect to the spontaneity, the things are happening all the time. You know, literally, you can be sat at home. And then an email comes in, we'd like you to sing for the Pope next week. Now, that's not happened this week, by the way, but (laughs) But it has happened. (laughs) But it, it, it happens, and when it happens, it's that there is that initial euphoria of oh my god, you know, look at this. And there's been a few things recently that have happened of a similar nature where We've had a, an email or a message, and it's been like, goodness, I can't believe we're doing this. This is fantastic. And it's it's a continuous thing. But the bulk of everything is pre-planned. And, and the one thing that I think it's all well and good being able to sing, but to sustain a career in the music industry, anyone who's been able to do it for more than 10 years – has to have had something to do with it themselves. You ha- You can't just say, "I'm going to sit here and let everybody do this for me," because it won't last for five minutes. You have to be on it yourself. You have to be across everything that you're doing, and you have to have. You have to have a solid business acumen.
1: Have you ever been on the sharp end of, of some of those sort of more, more nefarious elements of the music industry? Have you had any bad experiences?
0: Yeah, loads. (laughs) It's one of those where it's in many respects, I'd rather forget them, but yes, I have. But I think it's not necessarily as a musician, it's not necessarily most of the people that I've spoken to that I know within the context of the industry have in one way or another, but it's not necessarily berating it and, dwelling on it that that counts what counts is learning from it and thinking well this has happened i mustn't let that happen again there are so many things that i've learned it's difficult to make an analogy but when i first started singing i literally had one shelf of information and it wasn't in my opinion the best shelf of information Now I've got a catalogue of information that's endless Mm. because I've picked it up over 33 years of working with a lot of people. I'm not saying that everyone in the music industry is like that. They're not. There are some fantastic people in the music industry, but there are also some not so fantastic people.
1: Well, it's interesting. We um, interviewed um, Shane Lynch uh, a couple of weeks ago of Boyzone fame. Yes. Um, and he went as far as to tell my colleague that he considered the music industry to be demonic and that he had seen at the very highest echelon, these are his words, albums being prayed over demonically. Um, have you ever seen anything like that?
0: No, <laughs> I haven't. But there have been certain points in my career where i've literally thought goodness gracious me this is what a horrific business but demonic i'm not so sure, i'm not so sure about that but there are certain dishonest yes that they're, they're out there they know who they are um but that they're, they're out there and it's it's quite and and the thing is it's easy it's easy because more often than not You've got very experienced industry people who are used to dealing with agents and promoters and record labels. And you've got some young, like I was, some young, wet behind the ears kid coming into the industry with zero knowledge whatsoever. Come here, son, I'll look after you. Yeah, it's easy to take
1: advantage, isn't it? Too easy. Now, um, last year, what was it? um, In 2022, you you did a a tour and an album with the lovely Alid Jones, who I've had the pleasure of interviewing, and um, (laughs) Natasha Hemmings, who I've also interviewed. Um, So that must have been a lovely experience. Tell us about that.
0: Alid and I go back such a long way. I mean, we're mates. So I, I, I. I love working with Al, and it's ni- it's nice for a change to have somebody on the road with you that you can have banter with and you know you're on stage with them. It takes what little pressure I feel, but it takes a lot of the pressure away. I just enjoy it i mean it's it's a nice feeling working with a friend and doing what you love more than anything. It's a nice feeling and i is it, i it's nice I really working do. with
1: people who also share your faith as well.
0: Yeah, although I've got to be honest, Alid and I don't really talk too much about faith. And the times that we have discussed faith in depth, it's usually been when I've been appearing on songs of praise. But most of the time, um, if I'm again just being honest with you, we're like two school children. Well, it's one of the things that I like about Alid is he has this, and, and not too dissimilar to me he's got this mischievous element about him. You know, we're both in our fifties now, but he, he's still got a young perspective on everything. And in many respects has childlike qualities, which, you know, many people have often said about me and I hope they keep saying that for a long time. I actually like the childlike qualities that I supposedly have. And it means that Alan, I just, there's, it's, more often than not, it's nonstop laughter. Don't get me wrong, we are serious sometimes, uh, but most of the time we're clowning around, pulling faces and joking about, and it's, it's great, and I love his company.
1: And you've got a new tour coming up at the moment. Um, you're, you're touring around some of the beautiful and historic buildings in the UK, including lots of churches and cathedrals and abbeys and singing uh, a collection of some of your, your favorite songs and um, some of the things that the, that people will know you the best for. Could you tell us um, a little bit more about that? And, um, and what, what are the, your favorite songs to sing and why?
0: Well, for a noisy human being like me, there is no better locations to sing in than the great big expansive cathedrals and, as you mentioned, the abbeys and the churches, those places where my voice resonates greater than any theatre that I've been in. Maybe the Albert Hall is one of those places actually where it resonates incredibly well, but... The churches and the cathedrals, uh, for me, I always feel when whenever my wife and I go somewhere, we will we, we'll more often than not always end up in a church or a cathedral for an hour or so walking around and looking at everything and sit and have a prayer as well. But I think, I mean, we were at Chester. We went for a day at Chester. And I said, let's go to Chester Cathedral. As soon as I walked through the door, I wanted to sing. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I walked in. I was like, God, "I don't really want to sing in here. I just want to sing the the Bart Guno Ave Maria or, or the Caccini or something." That was the main reason for deciding to do it. Was I just love to sing in the cathedrals and the churches, and it's so far it's been fabulous. And and it's been received because you, you you're never sure. You can never be certain how a tour or a record will be received, um, but it's been received so well. When you get that kind of response, it's fantastic. It, it just it makes you feel good. It, it's, a, it's a success story and, it, and, and it's a, it's one that's lasted for a very, very long time.
1: Would you consider your your um, musical talents to be a gift from God?
0: Yeah, without question. And a gift that I didn't know I had until later in my life, into, into my mid-twenties. I wasn't like Alid, was trained from a child. Mm-hmm i wasn't it was something that i discovered later in my life and uh, you know thank god that i did but yes i do 100% uh,
1: i've got a quote here from from you in the, in the times in 20, 2007 you said i want to be a musical force for good for a long while could you explain what that means to you
0: yes quite easily really when i go on stage i go on stage with the intention of making people happy it doesn't matter where i am actually if there's any happiness to be spread and i have an opportunity to do it then i'm happy to do it my daughter works at a care home and she's work at the moment she's working in the the dementia ward and she said it's a few weeks ago and she said um they've asked if you'd come in and say hello to some of the the people. And straight away I said, yes, I didn't have to think about it because I, it was an opportunity to potentially, you know, bring some happiness to some of the people in there. And it turned out that I ended up going to this, that they had this big um, like open day. It was a party and they all, they, they all had hats and everything, and, you know, they had the little sausage rolls and a the, the little buffet laid on. And I went in there, and I spent the whole afternoon with them, and then at the end of the afternoon, I ended up singing for them. And it was so emotional, the whole thing. Um, somebody, someone had asked me to sing uh, Jerusalem, which I did, and they were all singing along, and then I sang um, Abide With Me, and then I finished the day off. Uh, with a request someone had asked me to sing no music or anything just sang it a cappella. and then I ended up singing um oh Danny Boy and at the end of it all I could see was these faces with smiles they were all looking at me while I was singing this piece of music some of them had tears and I literally just ended up with tears rolling down my face and it was nothing that had been planned it was it was just that feeling of all I've done here today is come in and shake hands and smile at some people and sing for them and they're happy. And what better thing in life can you bring than happiness to other humans?
1: A very beautiful sentiment.
0: Yeah. And it's a sentiment that, you know, I strongly believe in and I've, I've done Quite a lot of these things that some people might think as small. I I did something in a, a, a care home not so long ago, and then a, a charity event for this small place in West Yorkshire, and they'd written to me, and they were it was um a a a school for children with serious learning disabilities and handicaps, and they were opening a playground and they they wrote to me and said. On the off chance, I know you'd probably say no, if not, could you send a few signed CDs? And I read the thing and I thought, I'm just going to get in my car. And I wrote back and said, yes, I'll come down and I'll sing a song for you and, and come and meet all the children. And I did. And when I came home, I felt incredibly good about myself.
1: Do you think part of that is you not wanting to, to lose touch with the sort of the person you were before you came became famous because you became famous in later life? Is it easier for you to sort of re- remember what it was like to be a quote unquote normal person and, you know, be able to move around with a little bit more freedom? Is that harder if you've been famous your whole life, do you think?
0: I don't think the sense of normality has has anything to do what with why I do I do them I think because I'm in a I feel like in many respects like the thing I did recently with world cancer research I do them because I have a platform that means that people will respond to what I'm doing And when I do the smaller events it's not really got anything to do with anything other than as I said to you before, I like to make people feel happy. And it doesn't matter whether it's 92,000 people in a stadium or 90 people in a care home, the smiles on the faces and the responses to what I do when I sing, that's for me is the payback. Right. So, as we uh,
1: draw the interview to an end, I've got a few quick fire questions for you. Okay. What's your favourite hymn?
0: Abide with me.
1: If you could ask Jesus one question, what would it be?
0: It's it's a toss up between what what does the future hold for humanity, or is there a heaven?
1: So I think what you've done there is just technically broken the rules by asking two questions, but but I'll I'll, I'll let you have that. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a a favorite Bible story or passage that like means something to you personally?
0: I mean, there are so many. My friend and I, we exchange them pretty much every Sunday. There was one that he sent me that wasn't from the Bible, but it was written by a chap called Charles Spurgeon that read, The more grace we have, the less we shall think of ourselves, for grace. Like light reveals our impurity. And I quite like that.
1: Oh, I love a bit of Spurgeon. What a great preacher man.
0: Yeah, Uh, there's uh, another one from Ephesians. Don't waste your time on useless work, mere busy work. The barren pursuits of darkness expose these things for the sham they are. It is a scandal when people waste their lives on things they must do in the darkness where no one will see. Rip the cover off those frauds and see how attractive they look in the light of Christ. Wake up from your sleep, climb out of your coffins, Christ will show you the light. So watch your step, use your head, make the most of every chance that you get.
1: That was Russell Watson speaking to me, Emma Fowl, here on Premier Christian Radio. We hope you enjoyed this interview. For hundreds more conversations just like this one, you can download The Profile as a podcast. Just search for The Profile wherever you normally get your podcasts from or visit premiere.plus.
0: You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.